0: Welcome to Freedive, to go deeper and emerge with a greater appreciation. Join us as we take a deep dive into the people, skills, and expertise of PENSAR's infrastructure specialists and their unusual approach to making complicated problems simple. Tune in for the stories behind the solutions and the personalities behind the expertise. Welcome to the first episode of Free Dive. My name is Michael Blucher, and it's my great pleasure to be the host of Pensar's inaugural podcast. Today, we're starting right at the top, talking with the managing director of Pensar, Carl Juncker. His story, the genesis of Pensar, and how the company has evolved over twenty-three years. Carl, welcome. Thanks, Bludge. To begin with, yes. Why a podcast? Why are we doing a podcast? Well,
1: I mean, the podcast really came out of, we did an internal survey, it was a little while ago now, and one of the sort of bits of feedback that we got was internal comms could do with a little bit of reinforcing and to give sort of a lot of the new people some
0: background to the company and, and share some of the stories. but. That's where the idea first came from. from Multi-site, multi-division, that makes it difficult just to communicate with everyone at the same time. It does. Yeah, so does geography when we were a little business. Because they're spread all over the country, aren't they? They are, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, we've done work from the Torres Strait down to south of Hobart and we have projects everywhere in between. So the idea of pulling everyone together in a central location, it's just not practical. So, you know, we're hoping this sort of initiative could share a lot of information across the business,
0: and we're calling it Free Dive. Is that one of your inspired choices, or no, does that come no. from?
1: That's come from Camilla and Louise in marketing. As soon as I saw the name, I loved it. Free Dive has a connotation around water, but it also it's it's like a deep dive, you know, into particular subjects or into people's backgrounds.
0: So, I think that name was a no brainer when when we saw it. And aside from you sharing your pearls of wisdom, and that's probably 20, 30 episodes in itself, but beyond that, opportunity for others to get involved? Yeah, definitely. Initially, it's me
1: just kicking things off because it makes sense, having the most history in the business. But one of the things that we're attracted to is actually diving into the stories of some of the individuals within the business, and not necessarily ones that have been here a long time some that are new, some have been here for 20 years, and anywhere in between. We're really just interested in the stories and the characters
0: in the business. Sounds great. What I want to do before we even get way into, into Pensar, I want to go right back to the start. Because everyone comes from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So where does, where does Carl come from? What, what, <laughs> what, are, what were Carl's shaping influences? Yeah, that's that's obviously a long story, but...
1: have you um, got a short answer
0: to No, I don't.
1: <laughs> Uh, I, I look, I'll go back a little way. Like my mum and dad, both from um, country Queensland. Essentially, my father was uh, took a fitter and turner trade with Main Roads Department up around um, Central Queensland, and then very quickly he and mum moved to Brisbane, and that was with Hastings Deering back in the day. So, Dad worked his way from being a fitter and turner uh, all the way through to eventually being one of the general managers of that organisation over forty years, but. Our mum was; she was a stay-at-home mum, supported myself and my brother. But they made a decision that they wanted to put everything they could into our education. So, uh, having not come from an education background, they neither had, you know, finished high school, which was not a, abnormal in those days, and neither had been to uni. In fact, I don't think anyone in our entire family, until my brother and I, had ever been to uni. So, we were very much from a a working class background, but. Uh, I know dad was a very professional guy and had aspirations to sort of improve. And that came through with us. So Mum and dad put every cent they had into a good education for myself and my brother. And then, you know, that led to us sort of going to uni and off we went. What sort of
0: school kid were you?
1: (laughs) Uh, I'd say like I was quite good, sort of that grade eight, grade nine era. I think that was my peak of everything. (laughs) (laughs) But after that, it was a bit of a struggle. Like, you know, I ended up doing engineering, but I think I was I had a C for maths. I didn't, you know, even think engineering would be a possibility. Could you get into engineering with a c for maths? Uh, It was maths too, and uh, but it, yeah, you could because everyone thinks you have to be a straight A student to do like in maths to do engineering, but it's not. What I probably struggled with at school was not having an application for the maths, and also yeah, in what to do with it. What right? to do with it? So if I just saw formulas on a sheet and couldn't relate them to uh, a particular reason for doing it. I, I I wasn't particularly interested, but also the funny thing about school when I look back is like I have a son who's fifteen and he's bigger and taller and smarter than me. But there are kids at the same age that are two foot shorter. Uh, haven't matured, haven't grown into themselves. So I look at the contrast. I was probably more one of those you know, sort of late developers and a bit young of mind going through those years. So did you leave school a resilient individual or did you? I was happy to get, get out of, out of, of school. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was happy to get out of school and get focused on something which which I wanted to do, which was, ended up being engineering. But my first choice was architecture. But um, I didn't get the grades for architecture and it was probably just as well. So, yeah, it fell into engineering at um, QT.
0: And your tutor, John Liston, what was the – remember you telling me once about an interaction that you had yeah, with yeah. John Liston that so John that really found that just kind of shaped your thinking, perhaps not just with direct engineering, but in terms of how you actually might approach business? Soft skills, yeah. This is
1: back in third year construction at uni, there was a, a really, really – influential construction lecturer John Liston who quite a few people in the day came across but they only had one construction subject in the whole of uni. Anyway, we had to do a pitch, what were we doing? We were designing and a subdivision basically and then we had to go and build it and we had to, you know, present the tender and negotiate the contract and I was the lead. We had, you know, what we thought was a killer bid right price right team everything and i was playing the role of the you know the, the general manager or whatever and he put me on the spot and said we love the bid we just don't like the project manager that you've nominated for the job we want you as in me as in the, you know general manager to run the job i say oh no 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 you know that project manager is really amazing and he'll do a great job and all of that sort of stuff and then we failed <laughs> <laughs> And later, so what did he want you to do? Well, what he wanted me to do was to find a way to satisfy the client's need. And I had completely misread that I would have thought for sure he wanted the right engineering technical solution. And this was like sales training 101. What he wanted me to do was to tell the client kind of what they wanted to hear, <laughs> but also not lie. So what he really wanted me to do was to say, Michael, if you were the client, yeah, Michael, um, that's no problem. I'll step into the job. And I'll run the job. And if at some point in time you feel comfortable with the transition to Joe, the project manager, provided you're happy, then we'll do a transition at some point in the future. But by all means, yeah, I'll be on, on the ground running this thing. Yeah, day so one. it's
0: saying no in a kind of a yes type of way. It, it, yeah, it's just saying yes. But,
1: <laughs> but, but it was a good lesson because he said, well, You've got to learn how to respond to what the customer is wanting, and I, and I think even at the time I was so cranky, and I didn't think what he was telling me was the right answer. I thought, no, you've got to be honest like this, and it wasn't being dishonest, but it was just finding like it's selling, it's marketing, it's actually just putting your best foot forward. That solution still would have worked. He had, so I would have had
0: to step on the job. So there's so no question. Was this that. your first real introduction to EQ as it relates to? Engineering, um,
1: yeah, it would have been, yeah, yeah, definitely. That that it's not just about the numbers; it's not just about the solution yeah, you to build. It's about all the being able to sell it. Like, yeah. there's no point being wonderfully technically proficient if you don't have the ability to articulate it or the ability to connect that solution to with what the customer's asking. So, I could tell you thousands of proposals we've put in over the years where we didn't get the connection right. And ultimately, we didn't win the project, but we would have had the superior solution. So, it is a mindset, particularly in engineering and construction type people. We're very sort of solution focused, whereas we've got to make sure the solution connects with what the customer's asking.
0: So, you go into uni at 1987, you come Mm -hmm. out in 1991, and the world's a completely different place. When you went in (laughs) there, there was jobs everywhere. Mm -hmm. When you came out, nil jobs. Correct. The parallels to uh, where we're at right now-
1: A nil. Well, the, so the- There's paral- lots of jobs. The, yeah. So it's 87, hmm. 88. So one thing I've been trying to communicate to some of the younger people that I come across is, yes, it's really buoyant right now. But when you're young, you don't realize things go in cycles. And someone can tell you to the blue in the face that things go in cycles, that- But without the relevance of actually living through them, it's very hard to really appreciate what that means. But certainly in 88, the placement rate of engineers into the workforce was circa 90%. No one one didn't get a job. By the time it got to 91, the economy had really retracted. It wasn't a good time in the economy. And and the placement rate, I'm going to guess, was 10%. Mm. So initially, uh, I put in a lot of job applications, actually, like I'd say right now, anyone who's joined us in the last six months probably hasn't even had to put in a job application, but I would have put in 20 looking for grad positions and um, couldn't find any. So I actually leaned on the old man who by this stage had been at Hastings for 25 years and knew pretty much everyone in the market. And he got me a job, wasn't paid, <laughs> a free job out at Gundawindi working for a really great privately owned civil and mining contractor called Roach Brothers. They were more mining contractors, but they had a civil business. So I got a free job as a chainman for a surveyor just to get a little bit of experience under the belt. Yeah, out of Gundy on a road bypass. That doesn't sound like a great deal. Uh, well, they ended up paying me. So I got there, did a week and they said, you know, you're know, you somewhat useful, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll pay. And degrees of usefulness. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you do anything, right? Like if you haven't got a job, you can't just sit around at home Essentially what happened from there is there was a what was he, a Dutch engineer working at the Kalgoorlie Super Pit, which is the really large gold mine on the outskirts of what's called Kalgoorlie Boulder. If you haven't been there, it was at the time the largest open pit gold mine, I think, in the southern hemisphere. Anyway, we were a contract mining outfit there and they had a project engineer who was going back to the Netherlands for two months. So they said, right we got a proper job for you now. Get on a plane and go to Kalgoorlie. So I moved in over at Kalgoorlie and uh, basically took over his job with about three or four days handover. And I was now the Kalgoorlie super pit drill and blast engineer (laughs) and pro-engineer for the mine. And I'd never even seen a mine. I'd never even been to a mine. So again, it was just about saying yes. Yeah, low-level comfort, but I can do this. I didn't think there was any chance I could do this. <laughs> so, but once I got into it, it's like any job, really. Once you actually understand what it's all about, there's not a lot of rocket science there. But it was, it was a pretty quick introduction into you know two things: contract mining and living, you know, well and truly away from home in a in a quieter, yeah, unique dirty, environment. Dusty, if you've ever huh? been to Kalgoorlie, have you been to Kalgoorlie? No, it's right on the bottom of my list of places. <laughs> okay. It's a strange town. <laughs> It's a strange town. There's more pubs than there are places to eat. And, uh, but that, that was considered quite urbanized compared to where we went after that. Basically, from Kalgoorlie, the guy came back and they said, right, where are you going now? Ended up going up to a, a brand new mine inland. So it, it's near a place called Tom Price, which is right up in the Pilbara. Probably, I'm going to guess 1,500 k's north from there, about two hours drive inland from the coast. In Port Hedland, and that was a brand new mine, essentially a iron ore mine in the middle of nowhere, and it was the first time they'd used contractors. So I think it was Hammersley Iron might have been the client. I think they ended up being bought by Rio, but yeah, we were we were establishing a essentially a new a new contract mine for for Hammersley Iron. So nothing I've heard here remotely glamorous about what you're doing in the world of engineering. So that particular job, I was a surveyor, and I'd never done any surveying. <laughs> Um, so there was this great old head surveyor for Roach, Alan Archibald, who I see his name pops up from time to time. He was an amazing guy. And essentially the head surveyor was waiting for me to show up in the, in the charter plane, landed through my gear in the, uh, in the donger and came straight out to see Alan for a 12 hour handover. So I had to learn what was called a, to use a jodimeter theodolite of course, <laughs> and had like a day's training. And then from... Alan said, "You got this, mate. Off you go." And uh, he flew out, and I was now the the surveyor for the mine. So had to do all that, setting out all the blasts. Had to, you know, set out the pit, the haul roads, um, do all the monthly volume calculations, and yeah, it was you sort of learn on the run very, very quickly. As a result, I actually set my shot firing license as well, so I became a drill and blast shot firer and would do the odd shot when the, cause it's a swing, you, you flying it out. So the headshot fire would be out and I would get to do some of the shots when he was gone. So what was the sum total of all these bizarre experiences? Ah, uh, the sum total, uh, really just at that early stage, it was just about getting experience. Yeah. Building capability and, and resilience. I think yeah, you've raised it before, yeah. um, in that environment, it's not glamorous. So they used to do eight, week rotations. I think nowadays they do even time rosters. So we do eight weeks on week off. You didn't really want to go back, to be honest with you. They're pretty challenging locations and with some pretty you know, interesting characters, I guess, along the way. So it was good for a while, but- A yeah, congregation
0: of criminals hiding uh, from authorities, Is that- <laughs> there's, there's quite <laughs> a bit, them- <laughs> and a
1: lot of screening, pre-employment screening in those <laughs> days. But you know, I, I kept going on that trajectory. We would, the next project was even more fascinating. It's called a mesa, And if you've never been over there, essentially the iron ore is, like the land used to be a lot higher and the iron ore is the hard bits and everything erodes around them. And you're left with these big lumps of iron ore and Mises are flat top mountains. So essentially you're driving out there and you can just see a big flat top mountain plateaued, which is solid iron ore. Like if you scratch the ground, it's gray. So we had to build a mine on top of one of those. We had to relocate a you know, a whole crushing facility from a nearby town about 40 k's away and reestablish this mine from zero. And I think that place was probably, I guess, my favourite experience over there because we, we had to build the camp. There was no camp. And these are extremely remote locations. 50 degrees was not unheard of during the day. It, it was a crazy environment. The funny thing was I'd be the only guy who on the weekends would get in the ute and go and explore the area. No one did that. They all What did the rest of them do? Just got on the booze. <laughs> got on the booze, to be honest with you. it's a wasted opportunity. So I explored all of that area on my, you know, days off here and there that I would get and yeah, it was quite a remarkable
0: experience. So roll fought a couple of years yep. and you, you've had a couple of years with Roche and you overlooked for a job at Hong Kong airport, so that's it. They're in the yeah, bad box. A good point, yeah. And, uh, and then got a that. job from there a job with latents. Yeah, well I guess
1: just The Hong Kong airport, yeah, Roach had half the contract um, to do the earthworks for the new airport. That was the plan that I was going to go over there, which is was pretty exciting to me. But this one of those things that the local manager wouldn't let me go. So I said, "Mate, you're too valuable. You had no one else (laughs) there." I said, "Mate, uh, you know, I'm going to go over there, or I'm going to go back and get into civil, which is you know what my background is." Ended up coming back over to where, um, to Queensland with Leighton contractors back in the day, where I'd tried out for a graduate position a couple of years earlier, and they had nothing. So I managed to get a job with Leighton after two years, because the things were coming back, right? They were starting yeah. to improve. And they Leighton's pretty much blue chip
0: organization, weren't they? They were-,
1: they were considered to be up there, but so that would have been 1993. Like a big job in 93 would have been 20 million bucks. Ten to twenty mil. So I came back and did the Miles Pudding Road interchange, which was a, um, a grade separated bridge and highway job just at the gateway arterial. It was seven and a half mil, and it was considered a reasonable sized job back in the day. So that organisation just went from strength to strength. It, it was in its golden era, which obviously for people who don't know, Leighton's you know is now CPB, part of that group. But, uh, Leighton Contractors was became probably the main well, certainly in one of the top three construction businesses. So it was a brilliant place to learn the craft of how to how to build things. So more the management of and the processes that they instilled in us in those days were probably a lot of that is reflected in the organisation today. That business has changed a lot since then, I'll just add.
0: So the couple of years that you had at Latence, was that a good experience in terms of phenomenal. your career?
1: Yeah. yeah, phenomenal. Like Certainly in the early years, it was amazing. Again, a lot of... Regional, um, remote work pipelines, similar to in some ways what we're doing now, but everything from rail, road, land subdivision, two big cross-country pipelines, so lots of diversity in work. Some really strong fundamentals around project management. All of the things that we do today, I guess, um, came from that era at Leighton's. Probably the only thing that wasn't great at Leighton's was as the business got bigger and bigger and bigger the financial pressure got bigger and bigger and bigger. So instead of, you know, getting their bids right and working with clients to make, you know, money the right way, it became a very lit- litigious place to work. And that was probably a reflection of a whole heap of things, but that, that culturally wasn't the sort of place that I really wanted to, or, or, or I could see myself long-term. Like I remember going onto the motorway and uh, which was, you know, $100 million job back then was massive. And a mate of mine now runs all the constructions or owns all the constructions, Greg Alder. He was running half the job and he had to go full-time just into claims. So I had to take his job and run half of the project. But on that job, we, I mean, everything was just about going in and spending all of our time arguing for claims that a lot of which I didn't think we were entitled to. And, and I just didn't think that was the place for me long-term.
0: They also weren't particularly lenient, if that's, if that's the right word, with the subbies in terms uh, yeah, of what yeah. they paid the subbies and you just it for arms and legs and not really just employees. And a
1: lot of it came down to who was in charge. But, yeah, there was very much a mindset of we don't really care if the subby goes broke except for the fact that it's going to make our job a little bit difficult. So I think on that first job, the Miles Plotting Road job, I was like a very green side engineer. All of a sudden, project engineer come site foreman. And yeah, we had a Yugoslav formwork subby. The guy's name was Sid Yukic. He's probably around if he ever hears this. um, They were a great company, trying really hard, doing all the right things. But, you know, they'd been signed up to a deal that I had nothing to do with. And my project manager at the time was pretty determined that whatever was in that contract had to be complied with. And we were uncompromising with the subby and we really didn't have any care whether he was making or losing money. And I remember going out with this poor Subby clearly up against the wall and hammering him on side about everything that was wrong. And yeah, there was one day old Sid threatened to throw me down the, the pile and set me in concrete. And I actually, I think he was serious. <laughs> but that was, that's how we were encouraged I mean, to behave. So how you were wired. They wired us like that because that was, what they wanted, hard-hitting, aggressive. And I'm not saying that that was actually a bad experience. Like, that it was a good experience and it taught me there's that's one way to get things done, but it's not the only way to get things done. So, yeah. you know, we would never operate like that now. Like, no. surely we don't go and hand money over to subbies for no reason, but we need them to make money. Like, we want them to make money. We want to come back for another job. Yeah. Completely different mentality. And sustainability. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Tim down has a saying, you attract bees with honey, which is the complete opposite end of the spectrum to that where you can usually get what you want by working with someone and encouraging them and showing them the outcome and then actually helping them get there. It's 10 times better off than smashing someone
0: over the head. So eventually you work out that the adversarial nature of the latent business wasn't really in line with your of moral compass, mm. and you got out of there. Where did you mm. join Delphin? Is that right? Yeah,
1: I did. And I guess just going back from that, like I, I probably couldn't see myself at the time staying building road and highway projects for the rest of my career. I, I sort of looked up the tree there, and there were some good senior managers in that organisation, but there were also quite a few that I just had no interest in being. So I started doing a, I actually went, started studying finance postgraduate whilst I was still working at Layton's. And the goal was to actually get into infrastructure funding was what I thought at the time. So that would be, you know, working for a Macquarie bank or someone like that, funding, looking at how to fund uh, large scale infrastructure projects, which kind of was a thing at that point in time. I just had an idea, but going and doing that postgrad study, it just started to open my eyes up that I really enjoy construction and the engineering, but it's a piece in the puzzle. So it was a bit of a like a start of that genesis of thinking, okay, to that point, I thought engineering was everything. And then you start learning about the rest of the world and uh, about finance in particular in that situation. It started to open my eyes up. And I thought I wanted to try something sort of within the construction-related sector, but not what I was doing. So I actually applied... For a job with a company called Delphin Property Group which is a, a large-scale land development organization like a Stockland or one of those but it was called Delphin Property Group. It it was the first of the integrated sort of master community developers It had a large project in Adelaide which was a, the first real integrated master plan community and then they bought Forest Lake. Um, so Forest Lake was one of Delphin's projects and I sort of joined that organization as a project engineer, they called it. So I was essentially in charge of delivering all the construction work at Forest Lake for you know about six months before I moved to another project. But that was a really interesting place to come into. I wasn't directly responsible for the construction work, so I would oversee other contractors. And at the time, there was QM Bert, there was BMD, and a company called Sivdeck with the contractors on site. I had not. I'd never seen those sort of companies because coming through that latent mentality, it was tier one or nothing. You know, there's no other possibility for construction. Oh, so there's Very, people
0: other than the big boys. Yes. Yeah.
1: And lo and behold, they do not do things the same way that Leightons do it. Like so I was client side there and I was seeing these privately owned, mid-tier, small to medium-sized contractors thriving they were doing great work that people were great to deal with the relationship was important and I guess it opened my eyes up in a few ways but that was like the first time I'd seen these smaller private companies even operating didn't even know they existed and the other really interesting thing there at Delphin which sorry I didn't mention before was ended up being bought by Lendlease so the name it was Delphin Lendlease for years and then just became Lendlease so that Lease development company you see now is used to be Delphin, this company. But a really, a really important lesson that I guess I learned um, being part of a development company was that the engineering is the last bit of the puzzle. Like, we're in charge of 80% of the budget, but all the decisions come before that. So I would have been one engineer amongst a team of about 30. And it was the last bit at the end. My job was just to get it done. So, I started to realise there's a sales and marketing team, there's a landscape architecture team, an urban design team, land sales team. Well, it just keeps going, and going, and it and you know I remember on a project, Dolphin ended up buying balance area of land around Bond Uni down the Gold Coast, and they had the opportunity to develop all of that. And at the first PCG meeting, which is you know the project control group meeting, our CEO guy called Chris Banks came up for the PCG and I was sort of like getting thrown under the bus to give him the bad news that they'd bought all this land and maybe it wasn't going to be quite as profitable as what they first thought. So I presented at the PCG that our infrastructure costs were going to be circa $30 more than what they'd anticipated and the amount of blocks they were going to get out of the site was like 30% less. So, you know, an absolute disaster. And I remember presenting that thinking I'd get booted out of the room. And he just looked over me and said, well, what's the big deal? And I'm like, well, that, that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> it's going to yeah, cost you more and you're going to sell like less. <laughs> yeah. But he said, don't worry about it. He said, what we'll do is, you know, we'll take the urban planning people, marketing people, we're going to travel around the world and we're going to work out how we can improve the development here to add more value so
0: that that won't be an issue. And yeah, So it's very and, much a fluid process where you're constantly workshopping, problem solving. Yeah, and innovating. So they actually did do that. And
1: and what they came back and delivered there was something very unique. If you've been down there, there's a real mix of education facilities, commercial development, all of that sort of stuff mixed into the one area, and they nailed it. And it was, I think, ended up being possibly one of their most profitable projects that they've done. So it was a good lesson from the master marketer. So the CEO of that development organisation was a marketing professional; he wasn't an engineering professional, and. That was the next thing. I'd only ever seen that engineers were at the top of the tree.
0: So just to recap, so what, what we've heard so far, we've, we've gone out of school, we've built resilience, we've gone into engineering, we've found out about sort of customer service, you've got Way way out of your comfort zone in these remote, dirty, dusty parts of Australia. Mm. You've come back. You've learnt where engineering fits as, as part of the the piece of the the whole puzzle. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair summary of what we've yeah. done so far? Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know,
1: my dolphin experience was only one year long, so it wasn't exactly a long experience, but it was incredibly important. So that was where the seed was planted about starting your own business. Correct. I mean, it was actually. The seed was planted at uni. That guy I mentioned, Greg Orler, he and I, really close mates back at uni, and we both said we were going to go and start our own construction company one day. At that point in time, we were considering doing it together at uni. (laughs) But fast forward, you know, 10 years, a lot changes. But the idea was already set way back when, and it was kind of forgotten. Um, But I always had this aspiration of starting a company. Can't actually tell you where it came from. The experience then at Delphin, I guess, got me to a point of seeing those smaller contractors and seeing how they were thriving and doing really well. And then sort of that influence of seeing this non-engineering type influence and how important it is. Yeah, I just
0: got to a point where I said, now is the time to give it a go. So there were some who inherit or, or are born into big businesses, Hutchinson's, for instance, and yep. Scott and and Scott Power, another one with BMD. But you've got next to nothing. You've got there's you haven't got an office, you haven't got a building, you haven't mm-hmm. got a, any sort of staff. Mm-hmm. What was the process? Where where do you start? Well, it's
1: probably a healthy sense of naivety helps. <laughs> um, blissful ignorance, yes, blissful ignorance is good. Uh, started from literally zero. I had some. Well, uh, Louise, who works in the business, and I got married in 99, so just prior to starting the business. So we we bought a unit. Well, that's a good test for the marriage. (laughs) (laughs) We bought a little two-bedroom unit uh, at Kangaroo Point. We had some savings from that remote work that I'd been doing and- because um, yeah, I can't imagine you would have had a lot of nightclubs out there to no, blow, blow the weekly wages. No, it's great actually. Away work is the best way to save a deposit for a house. And that's not trying to market to people in the business. <laughs> it actually is because there is no costs, and you get paid a little bit more for doing it. So it's the way to save equity for a home, which is what we did. So put that into the house. From there, we had a loan still, but Louise had a full time job. Um, she was working in marketing, I think, at Paul's or Telstra at the time. So we had an income and not a lot of costs and no kids. And so the downside risk was quite limited. So um, essentially, I just handed in my notice where I was and the next day started looking in the paper for tenders to price. Like that's, there wasn't a deep strategy thought through. Uh, in the end, I ended up doing some consulting day hire charged myself out. I was probably only a couple hundred bucks a day at the time to a company called Henry Walker on the busway project. Uh, so I started doing four. Like they wanted me to do five days a week, which I did. And I said, "Look, I've got to go to four because I'm going to start pricing work and starting my own business. I said, that's fine. Started doing that. Wasn't winning anything. Then they said, hey, we've got a big, we've got a subcontract variation to do on this project. You know, it's all above board. Do you want to do it? I said, yep, I'll do it. So I um, teamed up with a. Um guy called Ron McFadden and Pat Gross, Gross McFadden, and uh, essentially engineered that they did all the work and um, I did all the management. And, you know, that was the first job that Pensar did was actually a high-voltage, a couple of high-voltage pits and conduits on that busway project. So it was a power job was actually the first one, but,
0: yeah. Well, that's a, that's a point. Every great brand has a brand story, a, a pedigree, a history. Hmm. Where did the name Pensar come from?
1: So Pensar means to think in Spanish and... Essentially, it was one of the early uses of a uh, Google Translator, so that would have been about two thousand. So we just started putting buzzwords. Was Siri in operation then? No.
0: Hey no, Siri. No Siri. No <laughs> Apple. Button. No. No. It would have been Nokia's bricks. Yeah. <laughs> flip we only just had. We only had just had email. Flip phones with a twenty percent
1: uh, lifespan on the battery. I had a flip phone. Uh, don't even think you did text back then, did no, you? No. Don't think don't so. So we just started putting buzzwords into the Google Translate. And um, so, you know, all really construction-y sort of stuff. And then we we put in the word to think. And when we saw um, Pensar come up, we connected immediately with it because it was about thinking differently and thinking deeply about what we're doing um, was, was the idea. And I think, you know, even today that is as relevant as what it was back then.
0: Okay, so you're in a... Two bedroom apart from at Kangaroo Point, you've got a grey filing cabinet, you've got a fax machine, Mm -hmm. you've got one potentially two clients that you're helping out with, you've got a name, and you've got a concept of thinking differently. Mm -hmm. How, How were you thinking differently? What what did that mean?
1: Oh, look, we definitely approached jobs with a very professional mindset in terms of we took lessons learned from say the those big projects and bundled them up onto really small projects. So for, for clients at that point in time, they were getting a very considered approach to what might've been a very, very small job. So from that point of view, compared to the other people I was competing with, it was, it was a standout. It was very different to what they'd experienced. We would plan, engineer, everything. But, you know, to think there was a grand vision or, or a why or any of that, greater purpose back at the time it wasn't it was just about establishing a business and getting ahead Yeah.
0: so this is youthful naivety mixed with ambition i
1: didn't even know what why it was
0: like we're talking
1: 23 years ago and it's and it's become a really important part of the modern business yeah but back then it wasn't it was it was louise and i getting ahead and wanting to build something for ourselves for the future
0: in those early days what was your mindset mindset yeah, was, was it confidence, was it trepidation, huh. it's a mix of everything? Uh,
1: fake it till you make it, I think, is the best way to put it. So I think the first three or four years, I constantly was thinking about what I'd forgotten. What have I left out? What am I not doing? Because we were getting success. So started in that subdivision space, low-hanging fruit, no barriers to entry, opportunistic. Started at Forest Lake, back doing subdivisions, where I had worked with Delphin. And within probably three months, we had over 10 concurrent subdivision projects underway at once. So we went from zero staff to probably 30 and completely out of control. It was about saying yes and finding a way to get stuff done, but also at the same time thinking, what have I forgotten? What's the Achilles heel? Is there a big tax bill coming? Is there something that I haven't thought of as a businessman? Because I hadn't been taught business. So uh, as an engineer. No, that was I wasn't an apprenticeship a business, you were was, doing I learned it myself. And I actually tell the youngsters now, if you're doing your degrees at uni, make sure you do business at the same time <laughs> because learning it well. out on the job is the hard way to do it. Yeah.
0: And when were you actually joined at a like a director level, a partner level by anyway with any seniority?
1: Well, there was a great guy, uh, Clint Thorpe, who uh, worked alongside Michael Bissett from the early 2000s um those those two guys were in the early years incredibly important to the business so the three of us really grew that company through its civil trajectory that was land subdivisions all the way through um road and bridge and highway construction until not long after the gfc when the world kind of collapsed but
0: uh yeah they were they were the two most I guess, influential people at the start of the business. And notwithstanding GFC, but was, was there a moment just at some point further down the track where you thought, holy crops, I've actually cracked this? <laughs> no, still, still wondering that, that now. Yeah.
1: yeah, it is It is true because running a business is it's just so uniquely different and it's always evolving, always changing, but it's one of those things you're always on the edge and I guess you never really sit back and think, I've made it. It's just not a concept that comes to mind. And I think that's kind of fuel which keeps the fire burning, keeps things moving forward. It's like a it's like a flywheel. I think if you think you've made it and the flywheel
0: stops, that's when things um, start to unravel. So more globally, what would the 50-plus-year-old Carl say to the 30-year-old Carl? What advice would
1: Around the business side of things, yeah. um, I think... I think in the early years what I would do differently is I probably wouldn't just respond to the lowest hanging fruit. So what I said before about opportunistic having not studied any business at all. I studied finance, but that's not business. So, you know, being non-strategic. You know, it was great. It was an excellent way to get started and it was an excellent way to grow and respond to the market, but I was building into something that had was not had no strategic relevance just continuing down this civil pathway. So I think I would say use the opportunity whilst the business was first starting to really think about where we could be different, where we could actually add value, where our clients would miss us if we were gone. I would spend way more time thinking about that in those first 3 or 4 years. I wouldn't not do those first 3 or 4 years, but I would have used that time to work out where was the business ultimately going to go, where would be positioned, and I would have done more business
0: study. So that wonderful Venn <laughs> diagram between what you're good at, what you like doing, yeah. and what your clients need, intersection of those three circles?
1: Yeah, correct. I mean, a great strategy line is how much how much would your clients miss you if you were gone? Right, And in those several days, for me, we were doing a great job and we had some great clients, but if, if I wasn't there... There's a lineup out the door of people that are prepared to take my place and can do the job equally as well as what I can. So I think it's a great line. If we if we weren't doing what we do today across what the business is now, our clients would deeply miss our input. And I, cu- I couldn't say that for the early years of the business. So.
0: Well, more than 23 years on, we're still thinking differently, still going strong look forward to hearing the rest of the Pensar story when we get together next time. Thanks for joining us, Carl. Thanks, Blue.
1: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode
0: of Freedive. We look forward to you joining in for our next episode. If you'd like to share your story, send us an email at freediveatpensar.com.au. We look forward to hearing from you. And remember, if you enjoyed it, tell your friends.